Emmanuel, good morning. Uh, for those of you who are guests, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC, and it is truly a privilege to have you here today. Um, if you are new, we're so glad that you're here that we want to make it as easy as possible for you to connect. And so we have provided a place just for you that we call our connection point. Um, it's out the back of these doors, and I would encourage you to visit it after service if you're relatively new. There will be some kind people there waiting for you, and uh, they're more than willing to answer any questions that you have about our church. Uh, I would also love the opportunity to meet you. I'm usually lingering around up front here, and uh, we just love new people, and we want you to feel welcome, and we want you to feel acclimated, and so be sure to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, If you're just joining us, we have been journeying through the story of Jonah, and so I would invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and pick them up with me to uh, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, verse 1. We're going to read through the whole chapter. Uh, before we get into that, though, just a reminder that today is a James 5 service. Our elders uh, are standing by waiting to pray for you. So if at any point you feel the need uh, today to go and receive prayer uh, for anything, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, once again, it's a great ministry for you to be prayed for. You can get up at any point. I won't be offended, I promise. Um, it, it's, a, it's a good opportunity, and uh, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, To this point in our story of Jonah, he has had quite an interesting journey so far. In the the beginning of chapter one, God tells Jonah to get up, to arise, to go and preach against Nineveh. And Jonah was so against this idea um, that he actually runs away the opposite direction. He's trying to get to a place called Tarshish. It's the very ends of the earth. It's the opposite direction. We come to find that he is not actually running away from Nineveh, but he's actually running away from the presence of God. He's running away from the voice of God. He wants to get as far away from God as he possibly can. Well, Jonah doesn't make it very far, does he? And he boards a ship in the Mediterranean Sea. He sets out for Tarshish, and then uh, God flings a giant violent storm. He intervenes, and he interrupts Jonah's rebellion. And through this process, Jonah realizes that God is punishing him, or so he thinks. Right? And he, he uh, tells the sailors that were with him that if you want this storm to stop, you need to throw me overboard. You need to throw me into the water, and then God will have mercy on you while he punishes me. And so the sailors reluctantly do so. They throw Jonah overboard, and then last week we took a look at chapter 2, and we found that Jonah was sinking to his deep, watery grave. And then just as God intervened his rebellion through the storm, he now intervenes uh, in his death by sending a giant fish to come and swallow Jonah up. And, and God had mercy on Jonah. When Jonah was drowning, when he was dying, God saved Jonah. And we left our story last week in verse 10 with the fish vomiting Jonah back up onto dry land. And so let's turn and look to verse 1. We'll read it together. Go ahead and follow along. We'll read the entire chapter and then we'll pray and take time studying this. It goes like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city and going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, now as we focus in on your word, as we commit uh, the next several minutes to um, diving into studying your word, Lord, would these words permeate our minds, would they engage our minds and reach our hearts in prompt transformation? Lord, I ask that your spirit would fill these words, and not only would they be spirit-filled words, but we would have spirit-filled listening as we read from your word, your message to us would it have a dramatic impact, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Christmas is just around the corner. My kids are already watching The Grinch like daily. And so I'm going to be I'm going to be done with Christmas by Thanksgiving probably. <laughs> right? Having three little kids every Christmas is quite an adventure for me as a dad because every year there is always that one toy that grandma and grandpa gets for the kids that have written on the box every dad's worst nightmare. Some assembly required. I don't know where marketers get off saying some assembly required because this typically turns into an hours-long endeavor. I typically spend my Christmas afternoons not taking naps, not eating Christmas dinner, but assembling toys. And you know how this works, right? You get to the end uh, of assembling the toy, and you're left with extra pieces. Um, there's a handlebar missing that you don't know where it's gone to. You get this Frankenstein of a toy that looks like nothing uh, like the picture on the box, right? And it's just a mess. There have been times that I have assembled a toy and I have gotten halfway through when I realize that I've made a critical error. And in order to um, assemble this toy correctly, I actually need to go all the way back to step one. And I find myself unassembling this toy and starting from square one. I hit, I hit the reset button knowing that I've learned from my mistakes and I'm not going to make those mistakes again and we're just going to do it all over again. Right? We're just going to, we're just going to disassemble all of this. We're going to get all the pieces out on the floor and I'm just going to start from scratch. Sometimes the most simplest solution is to just start from scratch just to start from square one, hit the reset button, and start all over again. Unfortunately, in our life, it doesn't offer you many second chances. 
some of us have learned this the hard way. And so when we come to verse one of our passage, we must realize the significance that Jonah is being offered a second chance. Take a look at it. When we read verses one and two, it sounds very familiar if you've been journeying with us because it's the exact words only slightly modified that open up the book of Jonah itself. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it. You see, we see that the story is starting back up again. We're back to square one. God hits the reset button with Jonah. And this should be a fairly remarkable encouragement to us um, in that God gives Jonah a second chance. You know, it would be very easy for God to look at Jonah and say, man, you really messed us up last time. All right, what you did, Jonah, really messed up what I'm trying to do. And so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just going to send somebody else. Or Jonah, you really put us in a bind when you ran away like that. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to take this into a, a different direction. What you have to understand though is that God being perfect in his will will have it accomplished. There is nothing that you can do to interrupt God's perfect plan. There is nothing you can do to mess it up. There was nothing Jonah could do to mess it up. The Ninevites were going to hear this message and it was going to be Jonah. The word of the Lord comes again to Jonah. God commissions Jonah again. And we can learn about God's character in this second commissioning. From these first couple of verses, I want you to take notice of two things about God's character. That he is both persistent and particular. He is persistent and he is particular. He is persistent in that he's not giving up on having this message sent to Nineveh. He's persistent that it's Jonah that sends the message, that shares the message. When God wants a message to be shared, he stops short of nothing to ensure its proper delivery. And we actually see throughout the whole entire Bible that God is persistent in sharing his word. It comes through in the entire narrative of the Bible. When you look to the New Testament, you come across Jesus. We, we, we come across Jesus who's referred to as sent 44 times. This shows us the value that God is a God who sends. He is a God who, who sends. In John 14... 24 through 26. Take a look at these verses. Jesus is talking about his message. And this is what he says to his disciples. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. He goes on. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring you to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So in this verse alone, we see that Jesus was sent. We see that the Holy Spirit was sent. And if you were to keep reading in John, you would come across John chapter 20, verse 21. I don't have the words up there, but you'll come to find that you are sent. 
In that verse, Jesus has been resurrected and he proves that he's been resurrected to his disciples and he tells his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The basis of you being sent is the basis that the Father sent me. I am sending you. And he sends because this is how God communicates that his primary goal of, uh, in this world is to reconcile the world to himself, to bring the wayward world back into a relationship with him. And that's not going to be communicated unless somebody is sent. Romans talks about this, Romans 10, right? How, speaking of unbelievers, can they call on one that they have not believed in? How can they believe in one if they haven't heard of him? And how how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If you are a Christ follower, you are sent. You are on a mission to declare a message from God. We are all called to arise and go. And some of us obey that command. Yet some of us take the position in the stance of Jonah and flee the other way. But you have to know that because God is a God who sends He is persistent in his message getting out. He will not allow Nineveh to not hear this message. And he is not only persistent in the delivery of this message, but he is very particular in what this message is. Notice that he instructs Jonah to call out against Nineveh the message that I tell you. The message that I give you, Jonah, is the message that you will will share with Nineveh. In other words, he's saying, Jonah, you are not at liberty to change my words. You must go in there and you must tell them the exact words that I tell you to share. This is absolutely critical, Jonah. The effectiveness of this is critical that you share my message. It reminded me of when I was younger. I used to play football uh, when I was in middle school. And for whatever reason, they chose me as the guy to rotate the play into the huddle. And so I, I have these vivid memories of my coach who had these deep eye sockets. There were shadows over his eyes constantly. He always looked angry. And he would look at me, and they called me Kaz. They'd say, Kaz, you need to go in there and tell them to play. Tell them exactly what I say. And in the 10 seconds from me being on the sideline to the huddle, you would not believe how many times I would get into the huddle and I'd be like, and then my mind would just blank. (laughs) And I would either say the play wrong or sometimes just forget the play altogether. And we weren't a very good football team (laughs) because of it. My football career didn't last very long for obvious reasons. We've just established that as believers, we are sent and we are sent with a message and we too are not at liberty to change it. There can be a temptation for us as we interact with the world, as we share this message of God's word to declare either what we want to say or even worse, tell them what they want to hear. 
as preachers of the gospel, we are commissioned to preach God's word and only God's word. God, God says, Jonah, go into Nineveh and don't tell them what you want to tell them because that will be no good. And don't tell them what they want to hear. Don't tickle their ears because that will be no good. No, give them the message that I tell you. And this time, Jonah, learning from his past mistakes, gets up and goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh, which is described as an exceedingly great city that took three days to journey through. Now, if I could just take a sidestep to address Nineveh real quick. As I was reading through Jonah before we began this series, I couldn't help but notice that Nineveh is referred to as a great city three different times throughout the book. It's a continuing theme, and it most likely doesn't refer to Nineveh's size, but it actually refers to its influence or its importance. It was a great city, meaning that it had power in the world. At the time, it had influence. It was a city of significance. It was great, but it was also evil. Now, there's nothing wrong with the fact that it was a great city, but their greatness could not save them from their wickedness. We know from chapter 1 that it wasn't the greatness that came up against the Lord, but it's wickedness. God openly, several times, recognizes Nineveh's greatness, Nineveh's importance, Nineveh's power, and he doesn't even bat an eye. But we do come to find here that God is more concerned about Nineveh's holiness than its greatness. And so I think the application in our modern political context is very clear. See, in our country, it's okay to desire to make America great again or keep America great. But as Christ following, Bible-believing Christians, we absolutely must be more concerned about America's holiness than its greatness because that is what God is concerned with. And as we even come into an election year, it is paramount that this is the barometer that we use to shape our personal view of politics. We must go into it saying, is this what is holy? Does this make America holy? God is more concerned with Nineveh's holiness than its greatness. So he sends Jonah to preach against it. Jonah obeys this time and we come in verse to verse 4 where he wastes no time. On the very first day, Jonah gets in and he begins preaching. Right, now, I don't think we're given the full message in the text. I think we're given just a, a summary of what this message was. What, what is the summary? In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. A more little, literal word for the word uh, overthrown is actually the word overturn. And there's somewhat a poetic play on words for the original reader. 
Because this Hebrew word for overturn could actually have two different meanings. And this dual meaning of the word kind of lingers the rest of the passage. And I do not believe that this is accidental. It could mean one of two things. To be overturned could mean a sort of uh, calamity, an overthrow. Right? To take something that is ordered and upright and to turn it upside down on itself. To, to make a mess out of it, to destroy it. It, it makes me, it reminds me of my, my daughter, Allison. Right? We call her Allie. She's 19 months old. And so Sarah and I have effectively labeled this stage as monster stage. Right? Because she loves to destroy. One of her favorite cabinets that she can get into, that she has access to, is our pots and our pans. And she'll get in there, and she'll take all the pots and the pans that are in their place, and she will overturn them and cause calamity all over the floor, right? There's calamity in the kitchen as she takes something that's ordered and, and, and in its place and just destroys it and takes it out of place. So it could, it could mean that. Jonah could be saying that Nineveh will be overthrown. It will be destroyed. There will be calamity. Or this word overturn could mean that Nineveh will turn around. Turn around. As if they're walking on a path of wickedness and then they turn on that path and start walking the other direction. Right? Do, do you see the difference? In one sense, the, there is a threat that they will be overturned or that their way of life will be overturned. And it's important as we look at this, um, as we look at this, that both meanings are in place here because both meanings sort of play out in the text. Now, the Ninevites fear being overthrown, overturned. They fear the calamity, and so they in turn turn around and repent. The word repent literally means to change directions. But we see in verses 5 through 9 just a textbook response of what repentance is and what it looks like. It gives us a, a pattern of repentance, if you will, that we could actually follow. And so, yes, repentance in its most basic sense means to turn, but here we get a full picture of what repentance looks like. And so five things that I want to walk through that develop this idea of repentance. And if you're taking notes, we'll have them up on the screen. The first is this. Repentance is prompted by belief. Right? We see in verse 5, and the people believed God. They believed Jonah's words to be God's words, and they took God at his word. This is a critical first step in proper repentance, to take God at his word, to believe that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Most people do not come to a place of repentance because they don't take God and his word seriously. They don't believe that he will do what he has said he will do. The Ninevites did. They believed God, and they responded appropriately. And we see that they respond very quickly. It's the second mark. Their repentance is immediate. Their repentance is immediate. According to the text, Nineveh was a three days journey. 
The the commentators that I read agree that this probably meant that it was going to take uh, Jonah three days to go about his business declaring this message. Um, It it wasn't necessarily that the city was so big that it would take three days to, to walk through. It's just that in cities of significance, there was certain protocol that you had to follow if you were uh, carrying an official message or an official decree. And Jonah would have to follow this protocol. And in order to follow this protocol, it would take three days, right? But we see on the first day, Jonah doesn't waste any time. He begins to preach this message. And just as quickly as he begins to preach, the people receive the message. Their repentance is immediate. Number two, Jonah doesn't even have to preach on the second or the third day because the people respond that quickly. Repentance is immediate, but too often we put it off until tomorrow, right? I'll just do it tomorrow. We've been there before. We're, we're all spiritual procrastinators. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, wrote this. He says, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. The evil forces of this world don't care about what kind of resolutions you make today as long as you keep saying, I will do them tomorrow. How many times do we get caught up in the smokescreen of tomorrow? The reality is, tomorrow never comes. Because once we've reached tomorrow, it becomes today. And today, and it is replaced by a new tomorrow and another opportunity to cast our resolutions into the future. True repentance doesn't wait. It's immediate. It's right now. It's in this moment, even as we sit here, to take even just a minute to say, God, I've been doing the wrong thing, and now I'm ready to turn. How much pity there would be for the Ninevites if they said, you know, Jonah, that's nice but we're much too busy to do anything about this today. You know, I got to get the kids to soccer practice and the deadline at work is bearing down on me and then I've got to get dinner ready so I will just do this tomorrow. No, they respond immediately. There is a sense of urgency here. And from that, it launches into our third point. Repentance is contagious. Repentance is contagious. That's number three. We see in verse six that the word reached the king of Nineveh. You'll notice that it wasn't Jonah that declared the message to the king because the people beat him to the punch. I'm sure that it was on his itinerary. Perhaps he would have an audience with the king on day two or day three, but the word travels faster than Jonah, and the effect is rapid, and the expanse is wide. 
And this is significant because only items of true importance would reach the king. The king wouldn't have anything come across his desk that would be trivial or inconsequential. It travels fast. It's contagious as the masses repent. This may be a stretch of an application, but I think in our context, if we develop a culture of repentance, it will become easier to repent as we go. If we repent and confess our sins to each other and to God on a regular basis, it sends the message that we are not a group of people that have it all together and have all their ducks in a row, if you will, but rather we are a group of people who are in desperate need of God. And if you are willing to expose the messiness of your life, to own up to your sin, it primes other opportunities. If you are transparent and vulnerable, not just with God, but with each other, it gives me permission to be transparent and vulnerable. It allows me to enter into that conversation. Repentance is contagious. Number four, repentance is unbiased. We see in the text that God's word is being uh, heard and taken seriously at all levels, right? In verse five, it says that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Everybody did this. The king himself puts on sackcloth and sits in the ashes. In this story, there was no special upper class that that didn't feel the need to repent. There was no 1% that said, we don't need that. No, the king recognizes that it doesn't matter how rich you are, how powerful you are, or how influential you are in Nineveh. They all needed to repent. And so once again, do not assume that your greatness or your power or your prestige or your income will cover your sin. All of your accomplishments and accolades do not exempt you from repentance because God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Repentance is unbiased. It doesn't matter what your background comes. We are all sinful. We are all rebellious before God. And therefore, we all must come to a position of repentance. And finally, number five, repentance is humbling. Repentance is humbling. We read that every one of them participated in the fast and put on sackcloth. This was a very common practice in the ancient world when one would express grief or humility. It was essentially an outward expression of what was happening in their heart. They're saying in their heart that we want to step down in humility. We are mourning. We are grieving over our sin. And so this is an outward expression of what has happened in our heart. Sackcloth was a thick and coarse cloth that was made from goat's hair. And it would be extremely scratchy, extremely uncomfortable, and it wouldn't look very good. Right? This was not your fashion statement of the ancient world. When someone put it on, it symbolized just a rejection of earthly comfort. It was a self-denial. 
And one commentator says that it was a hallmark of true repentance. Even furthermore, we see the king himself display humility in verse 6. This is amazing what happens. He, he steps off of his throne. He takes off his royal robes, and then he puts on sackcloth, and he goes and sits in the ashes with the animals. He is vacating the throne and likening himself to one of the animals. If there were ever a time to use a picture of what repentance and humility looks like, it's this. It is vacating the throne of our life and saying, God, I do not belong here. You do. And so I'm going to go down and I'm going to sit with the animals because that's where I belong. In my evilness, in my wickedness, I belong with the least of these. At the end of the day, this is an accurate picture of what our posture towards God should be. Repentance in its truest spiritual form is simply humbling ourselves before God. Now, once again, he, God looks at the heart. This whole display of putting on sackcloth and fasting would be nothing unless there was a deeper heart change, right? And this is why the king instructs everybody in verse 8 to call out to God mightily and let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Turn from it. Turn from it. That's how we're going to know where your heart is if you're willing to give those things up, if you're willing to turn from those things. And then I love what the king says in verse 10. Or I'm sorry, the end of verse 9, I believe. He says, who knows? Who knows? As we have turned, maybe God will turn from his fierce anger. This is an expression of humility in and of itself because the king recognizes that they are at the mercy of God. They are in no position to argue their innocence because they've owned up to their guilt. They are not in a position to excuse themselves from their wrongdoing, and they have accepted the fact that should God punish them, it is completely justifiable. And so as the king asks, who knows? We see that their repentance is authentic. They've repented for the right reasons because they're not trying to strong arm God. Sometimes we make repentance transactional. We turn it into a kind of plea bargain. We convince ourselves that if I own up to my mistakes, if I plead guilty before God, then he has an obligation to weaken my sentence, to lessen my sentence, to weaken my punishment. God is not obligated to give mercy. God owes you nothing. We, We read in Romans that the wages of sin is death. We've earned that. But we also know from God's word that it is God's desire above all things to reconcile humanity to himself. This is the primary mission of God, that the world would turn to him. And when the world turns to him, grace abounds because that is God's character. 
We see this play out for the Ninevites in verse 10. God relented from the disaster he said he would bring to Nineveh. And you'll take notice that he didn't do it because of their outward actions of putting on the sackcloth and the fasting. No, he relented because of how they turned from their evil way. His response was not due to any longstanding moral standard, right? It wasn't because the Ninevites over and over again expressed a wonderful track record of faith. No, it was because they humbled themselves before the Almighty God. In his kindness, God accepts the Ninevites because of their repentance. He forgives them. As they turned toward God in humility, God turns towards the Ninevites in compassion. And this is the enduring truth demonstrated in this passage that while God changed his course of action in relation to the Ninevites, he did it to reveal his unchanging or what we would call immutable nature of grace. He is unchanging in his mercy toward sin. God will always look at sin the same way. It has to be punished. But if you humble yourself and you take hold of Jesus who was punished on your behalf, then I will turn a face of compassion on you because God is unchanging in that he wants the world to be reconciled to himself. We, we learn that in a world that is continually turning away from God, he is unchanging in his will to reconcile the world to himself. It is God's primary desire to be glorified, and he will be most glorified when he reconciles the world to himself. It brings God glory when rebellious men and rebellious women turn from their rebellion, step off of the throne of their heart, and then they turn to God, who will in turn turn from his wrath. And so you see, this theme of being overturned comes through in the gospel. God overthrows hearts. He overturns hearts so that they may be turned over to him. God comes in through the spirit, by the spirit, takes over, takes the throne so that you may be turned to him. Romans 6 verses 3 through 7 actually explain this pretty well, I think. Take a look at it. The words are up on the screen. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we uh, no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, God overthrows our sin. 
He overthrows our old self. He brings calamity to it, brings it to death so that we can turn over in humility to him. The gospel turns us upside down. But when that happens, when we behold the name of Jesus, when we look to him and we submit to him and we turn from our old ways and let him come into our hearts, when we let the spirit comes into our hearts, we realize that when the gospel turns us upside down, we've actually been turned right side up. We, we thought it was right side up all the time because it's all that we've ever known. But there's clarity when he turns us right side up. And we realize the way that we were living away and separated from God was actually upside down all along. Right? Repenting and submitting to Jesus, who made this possible through his death and resurrection, brings clarity to your life like you have never seen. And so will you submit to him today? Will you follow this pattern of repentance even in this moment and say, Jesus, I see you and I know you now. I have heard your call and I want to respond. Would you come and help me turn? I believe. Will you help me believe? And as we believe, there's much clarity. As C.S. Lewis has said, I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun, not because I can see it, but by it I can see everything else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity that you bring into our life through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would ask, Father, that if there's somebody in this moment right now who who the lights have clicked on for, that they would respond to the call that you have for them. Lord, I pray that uh, these words, uh, that uh, what the Ninevites did would serve as an example for us of how we need to turn to you. I ask, Father, that you would continue to forgive us and you would continue to show mercy and grace. We recognize, Lord, that we are nothing without you. And we are thankful, Lord, that if you can display grace and mercy to the Ninevites, who from our human perspective are far worse than we could ever hope to be, we know, Lord, that grace abounds for us. We ask, Father, as we close our service today, that we would go out in the world and be messengers, that you would send us to um, tell people about this wonderful grace and this wonderful mercy that you have, just waiting for people to repent, Lord, because we know that it's in your character that you would not want anyone to perish without repenting. You tell us that in your word. Would we take up that obligation and that, to take that call to be sent seriously, Father? Lord, we recognize that it takes resources to be sent. And so even now as we collect our offering, would you bless this? Would we be good stewards of it? And would we use it to make Jesus' name great and make it known? We ask, Father, that we would be wise in our giving, but also joyful in our giving. Lord, we ask that you would use it and multiply it, Father, today. We're so thankful for your kindness to us. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.